Hello! A quick note. The episode you're about to hear was released when this podcast operated under an old name, which was Pessimist's Archive. The podcast is now called Build for Tomorrow. Okay, enjoy. This is Pessimist's Archive. I'm Jason Pfeiffer. In the year 1900, Massachusetts was introduced to a local man that they would be hearing quite a lot about in the coming years. His name was Dr. Emanuel Pfeiffer. On March 3rd, 1900, a story appears in the Boston Daily Globe headlined, Experimental Fasting. And then it goes on to report that, Dr. Emanuel Pfeiffer of this city announces that in a week or so, he will begin a series of fasts, the first one to be for a period of 21 days. This will be followed by longer periods until he reaches what he believes is the limit of human power to go without food of any kind, which he holds to be 60. He will do this to emphasize his conviction that people eat too much for their well-being and to study the effects of fasting on the mind. Whether any of that is true or what even happened with the fast, I, I just can't tell. But six months later, on June 22, 1900, this advertisement appeared in the Boston Daily Globe. Wonderful but true are the records of cures performed by Emmanuel Pfeiffer, M.D., the renowned natural healer and apostle of health, who in March of this year fasted for 21 days in the interests of science. He successfully treats all kinds of chronic diseases by the simple laying on of hands, after having been pronounced incurable by regular physicians. Ah, so we learn two things here. One, that whole thing about fasting up to 60 days was a lot of big talk. And two, Emmanuel Pfeiffer was a quack who understood the power of a publicity stunt. Now, let's set aside Dr. Pfeiffer for a moment, and let me tell you about what happens roughly one year later. In May of 1901, smallpox breaks out in Boston. By that fall, the city's Board of Health pulls together a plan which basically goes like this. Quarantine everyone with smallpox, either in a hospital or on a facility on nearby Gallops Island, and encourage everyone locally to get vaccinated. By the end of the year, about 400,000 people are vaccinated, but it isn't enough to stop the crisis. And the efforts are being hampered by a group of very, very vocal anti-vaxxers who are claiming that vaccinations are dangerous and don't work and that nobody can tell them what to do. So in November of 1901, the chairman of the Boston Board of Health just has had enough of this, and he throws down the gauntlet and issues the following challenge. If there are, among the adult and leading members of the anti-vaccinationists, any who would like an opportunity to show the people their sincerity in what they profess, I will make arrangements by which that belief may be tested and the effects of such exhibition of faith by exposure to smallpox without vaccination be made clear. In other words, hey, anti-vaxxers, you think vaccinations are pointless? Then come expose yourself to smallpox and let's see what happens. Boom. Perhaps unsurprisingly, nobody steps forward. The Board of Health, figuring that their point had been made, soon begins a program of mandatory vaccinations. Physicians would go door to door throughout the city, offering smallpox vaccinations. Nobody will be physically pinned down for a vaccine, but if somebody does say no, they'll be fined $5, which is about $100 in today's dollars, and uh, might be subjected to 15 days in jail, which ain't nothing. Mandatory vaccines begin in December. And then the next month, in January of 1902, a man steps forward to take up the Board of Health's challenge. He is not vaccinated, he doesn't believe in vaccinations, and he will willingly expose himself to smallpox. In fact, he wants to tour the Gallup's Island smallpox facility where all the sick people were shipped off to. 
And who is this man? This brave, possibly insane man who's willing to risk his life to make a point? You guessed it. His name is Emmanuel Pfeiffer. And the Board of Health says, sure, we'll give you a tour. Come on, right this way. Okay, before we go any further, let's talk present day for a moment and what this episode is about. Currently, we're in, I think it's fair to say, a boom time for anti-vaxxers. Although there is absolute medical consensus that vaccines are safe and save lives, and I just can't stress that enough, Donald Trump has embraced long-discredited theories linking vaccines to autism, measles has repeatedly broken out among unvaccinated people in Minnesota, and there was even an anti-vaccine march in Washington. And all of this is, of course, troubling. Globally, vaccines prevent the deaths of about 2.5 million children every year. Here's a doctor on Jimmy Kimmel venting about this. Hey, remember that time you got polio? No, you don't, because your parents got you vaccinated. But this is not a science show, so I will leave making the case to other more qualified people. I just hope you're making the right choice. At Pessimist's Archive, we look back at the origins of fears of innovation, to the moment something new is introduced, so that we can try to understand where a fear came from and why it continues. And that is what we're doing today. Throughout this episode, by the way, our archival materials are being read by my old pal Mike Darling, the managing editor of Vice's new site about medical science and health. It's called Tonic, and they describe it as Real wellness advice for imperfect humans, which is pretty perfect for our subject today, because the history of vaccinations is very much a history of real wellness and imperfect humans, and so is the fight we still must endure about it. Anti-vaxxing actually fits really neatly among every other fear we've covered on this show, which is to say it repeats itself across time. We may say now, like, I cannot believe that we're still arguing about this subject, but they were saying the exact same thing more than 100 years ago. In 1875, in the New York Times, under the headline, An Absurd Prejudice, a writer opens by saying, quote, One might suppose that the popular prejudice against vaccination had died out by this time, considering that it has been practiced for nearly a century, end quote. And that was in, again, 1875. So let's go back further and then work our way forward. Smallpox has terrorized humanity for thousands of years, possibly tens of thousands of years. Egyptian pharaoh Ramses V, who died in 1156 BCE, appears to have had it. The disease is an absolute horror, with fluid-filled blisters across people's entire bodies and fever and pain and vomiting. The more common form of the disease had a mortality rate of 30%. By the 1700s in Europe, about 400,000 people were dying annually of smallpox, and one-third of the survivors went blind. For much of this time, people didn't have a great understanding of how the body worked or how to develop medical cures, but they did realize that if someone survived smallpox, they didn't get it again. So that led to a process called inoculation, which basically meant intentionally infect people with smallpox. The idea was to use a sore from a person with a very mild case of the disease, and then you would use the liquid from that sore, or in some places um, they would dry the scab from the sore and then pulverize the scab and use it as a powder to either make into a paste to scratch into someone's arm, or even in, in some places to inhale, so you could inhale the scab powder. So, uh, hey, aren't you glad you're alive today instead of in the days when they were inhaling scab powder? This is Carrie Youngdahl, the director of the History of Vaccines Project at the College of Physicians at Philadelphia. 
And the hope, Youngdahl says, was that some version of this horror show would give a patient only a little bit of smallpox, something that, yes, would make them sick, but not too sick, and their body would be able to fight it off. But this was not exactly a controlled medical procedure, and it came with all sorts of risks. Maybe the infection you thought that was a small infection on one person it turned into a bad infection, and so you were actually transmitting a more virulent form of smallpox. The fatality rate with inoculations was around 1 to 3 percent, which, when you're putting your life on the line, is a pretty big risk. And here you develop your anti inners, anti-inockers, and it doesn't really roll off the tongue. Anyway, I think it's fair to say that they had legitimate reason for concern. Although still, debate raged at the time because, yes, 1-3% to fatality rate is scary, but on the whole, it was a far better way to immunize a large portion of a population. There was objections by clergy members who thought that it was interfering in God's will, that only God should have the power to decide who lived and who died. There were people who just thought it was unsafe and unknown. Cotton Mather was attacked verbally. His house was attacked with pe- by people who objected to the practice. So yeah, certainly people were, were scared of it and, and didn't want to see it happen. But it was effective if it didn't kill you. Cotton Mather being the person who introduced inoculations to the American colonies in the 1720s. No less a thinker than the philosopher Voltaire even weighed in on this when England took up inoculations while much of Europe criticized it. Uh, Here's Voltaire in 1773. The English, on their side, call the rest of Europe unnatural and cowardly, unnatural in leaving their children exposed to almost certain death by smallpox, and cowardly in fearing to give their children a trifling matter of pain for a purpose so noble and so evidently useful. But in 1796, something happened that would change the world. An English physician named Edward Jenner realized that when someone survived cowpox, a lesser version of smallpox, they'd become immune to smallpox. So he found a young dairy maid with cowpox named Sarah Nelms, and he took some matter from one of her lesions and basically injected it into an eight-year-old boy. The boy got sick for a bit, and then recovered, and then was proven to be immune to smallpox. The Latin word for cow is vaca, and cowpox is vaccinia. So Jenner named his procedure the vaccination. For this, Jenner is considered the inventor of the vaccine. Although, to be honest, I was a little confused by this point, because it seems like what Jenner did was just do an inoculation with a somewhat different disease. And Youngdahl says that's true. Jenner hadn't invented what we now know of as a vaccine, so much as he just introduced the basic concept that science would then build upon. It was this idea of altering the material introducing it in a different way. So he didn't just take whatever smallpox matter he could find. He found something that was similar but not as deadly. He found a verifiably weaker version of the disease. He studied it. He published his results. And therefore, he introduced a process. Governments quickly embraced Jenner's vaccine and understood that if they could get entire populations vaccinated, a disease could effectively be wiped out. In 1806, Thomas Jefferson even wrote a letter to Edward Jenner that said, quote, future generations will know by history only that this loathsome disease has existed, end quote. In 1840, the British government made vaccinations free, and then in 1853 made vaccines mandatory. But the story here, of course, is not a steady march towards universal acceptance of vaccinations. Anti-vaxxers were quickly answering the call. Here's from an 1856 book called More Words on Vaccination. Do you really believe that you can successfully combat dirt with dirt? Resum teniatis. Resum teniatis basically being the Latin version of LOL. So, uppity slang. 
1866, the Anti-Compulsory Vaccination League was founded in the UK, and in America three years later, the New York Times ran a story called, Is Vaccination Dangerous? It went on, Everybody knows of cases where vaccinated persons have been attacked with smallpox. Thus, the principle of vaccination is becoming more unpopular than it was even when Jenner first recommended it. In 1876, there were even anti-vax riots in England. Seven local elected representatives in a town called Keeley had run on an anti-vaccine platform, and then, once in office, refused to enforce the mandatory vaccines that were the law of the land. That landed them in prison in York Castle, and that, in turn, brought out what the Times of London called, quote, a dense mob with so menacing an appearance that it was soon evident that a rescue of the prisoners was intended, end quote. And this sets the stage for what happens in Massachusetts in the early 1900s. And let's actually give these anti-vaxxers the benefit of the doubt because they were living in very different times than ours today. The quality of vaccination in the early 1900s was far inferior to what it is today. So there's probably no doubt that there were people who had bad reactions and that it wasn't well explained by the people vaccinated them. This is George Annis, our guide through the early 1900s. I'm George Annis. I'm the uh, director of the Center for Health Law, Ethics, and Human Rights at Boston University School of Public Health. And I've written widely on issues of public health and bioethics. And Annis says that back then, vaccines were not the only thing we did not know a lot about. Medical science wasn't clear on the difference between a bacteria and a virus. There were a lot of theories about what caused disease, but we didn't know about germs. You know, there's an old saying that it wasn't until 1910 that a random patient going to a random hospital had better than a 50% chance of profiting from the hospitalization. (laughs) That old saying feels like it could have been a little snappier, but you get the point. Before 1910, if you go to a hospital, you have only a 50-50 chance of walking out of there healthier than you walked in. And this creates a really interesting, terrifying tension for someone living during this time. There is global evidence that vaccines are reducing incidences of terrible disease, and yet doctors aren't especially well trusted, and smallpox is still breaking out, and everyone knows that medicine is basically the Siri of its time, which is, you know, like, it works, but not really. So that's the setting. And now, let's advance to 1902. Smallpox breaks out in Cambridge, the city next to Boston. And much like Boston, Cambridge announces mandatory vaccines. Doctors will go door to door, and if you refuse the vaccine, you're fined $5. Again, $100 in today's. People generally complied, but then doctors came to the door of Henning Jacobson, a Lutheran preacher, who said that one of his children had been harmed by a vaccine, and so, no, he would not be vaccinated. He refused. I think he could have paid the fine, but he didn't want to. He really, really didn't want to be vaccinated. So he did refuse. And the city could have let him alone, but they didn't. Cambridge fined Jacobson the $5. Jacobson refused to pay. Cambridge didn't back down and prosecuted him. And now the budding anti-vaxxer movement had a trial case on its hands, one that it hoped would result in a court striking down mandatory vaccination programs. An organization stepped forward to fund Jacobson's legal battle, and we were off to the races. First, there was a trial where a judge quickly finds Jacobson guilty, which was no surprise to anybody. Massachusetts law said the guy had to be vaccinated, and he refused. So, guilty. And then he appealed, and it went first to the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, which is our name for our Supreme Court. And after that, it went straight to the Supreme Court of the United States of America. 
Fast track to the big game. That's just how they rolled in those days. His argument was that he had a right to bodily integrity, which encompassed a freedom to refuse uh, to have uh, his body invaded by uh, a vaccine or by needles or by, by any other force. That the, the liberty interest of individuals was to uh, stand up uh, against government force. That was a pretty good argument, actually. <laughs> and that it was a violation of fundamental rights of American citizens to be vaccinated without their consent. It's an argument anti-vaxxers still use today, But Jacobson couldn't produce any actual evidence showing that vaccines were harmful or even ineffective. Much like, say, recent court cases about gay marriage, there was no actual hard evidence about the harm being caused. It was really more of an abstract personal argument. You know, something about this just doesn't feel right. And Massachusetts made a compelling counter-argument that, yes, we as a nation believe in and protect individual liberty, but that can't come at the cost of the expense of an imminent threat to the whole. When the entire community is at very serious risk, the state can, for self-defense and to prevent you know, large numbers of people from being killed, can order reasonable interventions like vaccination to be given to everybody. In 1905, the court made its ruling. In a 7-2 vote, it sided with Massachusetts. All states could now mandate vaccines if the safety of everyone was at risk. Justice John Marshall Harlan wrote that liberty is not, quote, an absolute right in each person to be in all times and in all circumstances wholly free from restraint, end quote. Although uh, he did make an exception for people who would be harmed by a vaccine. And here's the money quote. There is, of course, a sphere within which the individual may assert the supremacy of his own will and rightfully dispute the authority of any human government, especially of any free government existing under a written constitution. But it is equally true that in every well-ordered society charged with the duty of conserving the safety of its members, the rights of that individual, in respect of his liberty, may at times, under the pressure of great dangers, be subjected to such restraint to be enforced by reasonable regulations, as the safety of the general public may demand. Interestingly, this decision did not make giant news at the time. That could be because it came out the same week as Lochner versus New York, which found that laws couldn't limit the number of hours that employees are forced to work. That ruling was a big deal, and of course was later overturned, which is why, say, airplane pilots are now only allowed to fly eight hours during a 24-hour period. But Jacobson versus Massachusetts did have a steady ripple effect across the nation. More states followed Massachusetts's lead, enacting mandatory vaccine laws, and the anti-vax movement became even more organized and shifted its focus to children. Then, some states began mandating that children be vaccinated if they wanted to attend public school, which led to its own Supreme Court case, and in 1922, the court sided with the states again. And that's more or less how we ended up where we are today. A state can't physically force someone to get a vaccine, but it can deny their children's access to public education because of it. And because Jacobson versus Massachusetts carved out exceptions for people who felt they'd be harmed by vaccines, anti-vaxxers have been pushing to make those exceptions as big and flexible as possible. Many states now allow exceptions for people who don't want to get vaccinated, whether it's for religious reasons or philosophical reasons, and minor court squabbles continue to test these boundaries. So that was Jacobson. After the case, he went back to life as a pastor. 
If he kept up his activism, I can't find much evidence of it. And although the New York Times did run a short obit when he died at age 74 in 1930, it doesn't even reference the Supreme Court case. It just says he was the founder and pastor of his church for 37 years. And what happened to that other anti-vaxxer, Emanuel Pfeiffer, who, when we last left him, had just volunteered to walk the smallpox hospital without being vaccinated? Well, this is a tale of two headlines. So here's the first from the New York Times, February 9th, 1902. Exposed to smallpox. Boston doctor who opposed vaccination now has the disease and probably will die. Actual headline right there. Pfeiffer went to the island, then came back to Boston, developed smallpox, and decided to hail a cab and take it to his home in the nearby town of Bedford. And, you know, that might be kind of head-slappingly nutty to us, but you know who this news was not amusing to? The cab driver who, no joke, opened his newspaper that Sunday, read about Pfeiffer, and realized, holy crap, that guy was in my car. He quickly made his way to a hospital where he and his entire family was vaccinated, and then his car and home were disinfected. And meanwhile, scandals erupted everywhere. The Board of Health was accused of endangering the public by letting Pfeiffer go through with this crazy stunt. The town of Bedford began exploring legal options against Pfeiffer for potentially spreading smallpox around. Pfeiffer even sent his children to school, risking the lives of every one of their classmates. And now comes the second headline in this tale of two headlines. It ran just a month later on March 10th, 1902. Can you guess what it's going to be? You know what? I'm just going to cut you off. You are wrong. Dr. Pfeiffer recovering anti-vaccinationist convalescent after smallpox with his views on the disease unchanged. The dude recovered. His son, Emmanuel Jr., took a victory lap for his dad in the press, issuing this statement, quote, Dr. Pfeiffer is as strongly opposed as ever to vaccination. Nothing has happened to change my own views on the subject, and I am as earnest as my father in opposition to vaccination, end quote. And Dr. Pfeiffer would go on to live decades longer, which just, I mean, right? There is almost nothing worse in the world than seeing someone wrong feel vindicated. It makes us who feel in the right suddenly feel a little less right. The world is just not as straightforward as we wished it was. It is full of randomness. It's full of chance. That is a hard thing to be reminded of. And yet, I'd propose that this is actually the perfect ending for Dr. Pfeiffer's story. It fits so neatly into the past 100 years and more of debate over vaccination. And to help explain that, I want to play you this bit of tape from my conversation with Professor Annis. We were talking about what it would take to convince anti-vaxxers that they're wrong. And he said, And I actually had long conversations with some of the anti-vax people because many of them had experiences with their children where they seemed to change radically right after they get vaccinated. Uh, and ultimately were diagnosed as autistic. And, yeah, you can tell them that the vaccination had nothing to do with it, and scientists can tell them that. It was coincidental. Uh, Yeah, that happens, but it wasn't causative. But you're not going to convince many mothers who have experienced that with their children. That's true. You know, it's very much like Jacobson himself, who you weren't going to convince. He was convinced that there was something wrong with vaccine, and so are a lot of these parents. We're totally convinced. This is what carries through the past 100 years of vaccination debate. It's what carries through back to when Edward Jenner developed a vaccine. And on past that, people base their fears, their knowledge, their deeply rooted beliefs in what they personally experience, or at least what feels personal. 
It's hard to value any information over what you've seen with your own eyes, even if what you saw was the product of random chance, even if what you saw was a misinterpretation of reality. Because when a man is told that he needs to be vaccinated, and in response he basically bathes himself in a disease, catches it, and then survives, how do you tell that man that he's wrong? Even if he is wrong. Even if every expert, people who have devoted their entire lives and careers to a subject, all tell him he's wrong. Even if, had he done it all over again, that same stunt would have put him in a grave. Even if he may have gotten other people sick in the process. Nobody could yell or shame or make fun of Emmanuel Pfeiffer enough for him to doubt what he himself lived through. Uh, why even try? I mean, yeah, it's tempting and emotionally satisfying to knock the guy, but it doesn't serve the greater good. Because the greater good is vaccinations. So that just leaves us with a question, the riddle to this problem that's lasted hundreds of years. How do you convince someone to believe something other than what they think they experienced themselves? Solve that, and we're all cured. And that's our episode. Hey, special announcement. I have a second podcast. As you may or may not know, my day job is as editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, and I just launched a new weekly show for the mag called Problem Solvers. In each episode, I explore how an entrepreneur solved an unexpected problem in their business. It's insightful, it's useful, it's so endlessly fascinating to hear entrepreneurs talk about their failures. Please check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Problem Solvers. For this episode of Pessimist's Archive, of course, we have plenty of people to thank. Again, our archival reader was Mike Darling of Tonic, which is Vice's awesome new health site. Check it out at tonic.vice.com. Our theme music is by Casper Baby Pants, and you can find more at babypantsmusic.com. Thanks again to the experts I interviewed for this show, George Annis of Boston University and Carrie Youngdahl, the director of the History of Vaccines Project at the College of Physicians at Philadelphia, where you can get more information on vaccines at historyofvaccines.org. Thanks also to Stefan Rydell for his history of the Jenner vaccine in the Baylor University Medical Center proceedings. Hot reading material there, which I relied upon for this episode. And to Roberto Scalesi, who helped me access some Boston history research. Thanks also to the folks at Timeline.com, where we run accompanying articles for our episodes. You can find links to everyone's work, as well as other articles referenced in this episode, at our show page, which is pessimists.co, pessimists.co. Hey, if you like this podcast, please, 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 please do us a favor. Subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review on iTunes, which I am swearing to you helps us reach a larger audience. I just cannot stress that enough. We also have an awesome Twitter feed you'll want to follow. It's at PessimistsArc, P-E-S-S-I-M-I-S-T-S-A-R-C, where we're posting a regular stream of pessimists through history. And you can also get in touch with us at PessimistsArchive at gmail.com. Pessimist Archive was created by Louis Anslow. Our producers of this episode were Louis and Jennifer Ritter, and we were edited by Chris Cornelis. My name is Jason Pfeiffer, <clears throat> uh, very much not Emmanuel Pfeiffer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the near future. <laughs>